This is the St. Mark's Austin Sermon Podcast. Friday was Holocaust Remembrance Day. This year, among the dignitaries who gathered at the Auschwitz concentration camp was Doug Emhoff, the husband of Vice President Kamala Harris. And the trip was particularly poignant for him because he has roots in the Polish Jewish community. This annual remembrance has increased urgency now because we're seeing a resurgence of the ideology that led to the Holocaust. Nazism specifically, but also racism and nationalism that deny or diminish the humanity of some people. That ideology harnessed economic, political, and military power to pursue their ideal of a racially pure nation, as they defined it. Believers in this political religion drew a very narrow circle around who was blessed. Among the tragedies of Nazism and its rise to power was the role that churches played. The Nazi state defined what it called positive Christianity. In other words, they'd call you a church if you didn't oppose their political aims. Most denominations and most Christians were silent as the horrors of the Nazi regime unfolded. They traded their faith in God for comfort. The wide, welcoming circle of God's love for the narrow circle defined by race and nation. They traded the challenge of belonging to God for the comfort of belonging to the state. Only one group of confessing Christians stood up and declared that the church would not be defined by the state, but by Jesus Christ. And they would not uphold racist theories that divided human beings. (laughs) Members of this group were arrested and some were executed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, indeed. This is important history for us to know. As the church, the body of Christ, we need to understand how our allegiance to Jesus has been manipulated in the past and beware of how it can be so now and in the future. We can see, looking back, what perhaps those who lived in Germany in the 1920s and 30s could not, that nationalism and racism undermine a Christian's allegiance to God. At the time, it might have seemed practical and painless, but it was harmful and violent. And we can see it happening in our own time. One of the reasons Doug Imhoff made the trip to Poland was to call attention to the alarming rise in anti-Semitism around the world. Alongside that comes a rise in movements afoot in our country and all around the world that are conflating Christian identity with national identity, Christian allegiance with national allegiance. And while you can and should be a good citizen, there's always a separation because among other things, it is not Christian to hate. In the end, you have to make a choice when the demands of the state conflict with the demands of faith, to choose race or nation over God, 
is a form of idolatry because you're placing those things above God. The prophet Micah addresses a similar human attitude, one that fused worship of God with personal power and economic gain. In his day, the people of God were accumulating great wealth at the expense of the poor. They were using their wealth as evidence of their blessed state. And Micah tells them that God has noticed what they're doing and is not pleased. Micah imagines a court case in which God brings suit against the people for violating the covenant. The Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. Stepping up to the bar in the courtroom, God doesn't start with a grievance, but with an emotional plea. Don't you remember what I've done for you? I saved you from slavery. I sent you leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I reminded you again and again that I am here for you. Micah imagines the response of the people, and they're a little defensive. They wonder if their ill-gotten gains can make amends. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, can I make it up to you, God, by making extravagant offerings, thousands of rams, rivers of oil? They want to make a show of offering up the bounty of their excessive wealth instead of using it to feed the people they have exploited and starved. This seems like a familiar response, one we might make ourselves when we're exposed. The people hear God confront them with their greediness, and their response is to see if they can buy their way out of trouble. They hear God accuse them of abusing the poor who raise their rams and press their olive oil and respond by putting those goods on the altar of the Lord. We might be tempted in the same way. What do we put on the altar of the Lord? Does it include the profits from exploitation and degradation of people and all of creation? Likely it does. Most of the material wealth that we have, no matter how large or small, is entangled with the systems of oppression that pervade our culture. This is a tricky situation because clearly God wants our worship. It's a fundamental way we stay in relationship with God and connect with our Creator. And yet, we and our ancestors before us have found ways to corrupt that worship. Instead of trying to amend our ways, we try to buy our way out. With money, yes, but also with other gestures. 
So the question is, how can we engage in worship that keeps in perspective all that God does for us, keeps before us the covenant relationship we have with God, and that influences the way we live our lives every day? God's answer to the people of Israel and to us is simple, and it's also challenging. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Offerings are supposed to represent our commitment to God. Instead, they became for the people of Israel, and sometimes for us as well, a mere gesture. A ritual of thanksgiving and reverence turned into a display of wealth and power. They started to represent not a commitment to God, but to our own influence. And to that, God refers us back to the covenant itself. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Justice, kindness, and humility are the offerings we make first. They are the foundation of all our other offerings. They are the means by which we, as God's hands and feet in the world, address a broken world. This is a way of life, not a gesture. In our Episcopal tradition, we express this in our baptismal vow to strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being. And we renew that vow whenever we witness the baptism of a new Christian because we need reminding. When representatives from our nation observe Holocaust Remembrance Day, they are bearing witness to the dangers of placing political religion above God. And at this time in history in particular, they're pointing out that these dangers are not in the past. They are present with us today. There are people wanting to either claim your allegiance to these values or exclude you altogether. As Christians, we reject the choice to be inside or outside the human-created division of people from people, because that is really a division of people from God. Jesus teaches this same lesson when he reminds us that we are not blessed by our own accomplishments or material wealth or even by extravagant piety. Those who are blessed are those who do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with their God. They are the ones who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are humble, who are merciful, who make peace, who pursue righteousness. The invitation and challenge Jesus makes to us is to stand with God beyond all else. Our identity comes from our commitment and faithfulness to Jesus, including the absolute belovedness of every human being. That is the first and best offering we can place on the altar to do justice, 
love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. Amen.